Good morning, church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, as Mark already said, I'm Jared. I'm the youth minister here. I get to work with uh, primarily 6th through 12th grade students, and they are a blast for the most part. My purpose today, though, my purpose today, though, is to come and say one thing, and I'm going to say this one thing, and then we're going to talk about it. So I'm not going to say one thing, and then we're leaving. I know you'd like that. But I'm going to say one thing. This is my hope today. This is the message. Your focus fashions your faith. Your focus fashions your faith. I'd like to submit to you that where you place your focus in your everyday will affect the strength and reality of your faith. If you have a faith that is only helpful when things go bad, chances are you only focus on Jesus when things go bad. If you have a faith that is only a segment of your life, just like school or work or, or classes or sporting events or family or Sunday morning, chances are that you only focus on Jesus, on Jesus when it's convenient. If you have a faith that you truly cannot live without and you can't seem to feed your hunger for growth, then your focus is probably on Jesus when you rise, when you go to bed, and everything else in between. But if you only walk away from this morning, from this worship service, with one thing, I pray that it is this. Your focus fashions your faith. Therefore, therefore, as a church, and for the sake of the church, we have to refashion our focus. I want to dissect this idea a little further and see how it pertains to a few uh, pragmatic uh, portions of our life by asking, uh, let's call it rhetorical questions. We're going to, I'm going to ask you three rhetorical questions to talk about this idea a little further. And the first question, I believe, is, is, is hopefully uh, fitting for our service um, as it pertains to the Christmas season. So here's our first question for today. Where is your focus during Christmas? Where is, your focus, where is your focus during Christmas? It's almost Christmas time. It's almost the most wonderful time of the year. Um, the shopping list is, is going to need to be completed fairly soon. I like fruit snacks. Um, yeah, it's, if you look outside, uh, it doesn't really look like Christmas right now. It looks more like a, maybe a spring or a fall day. Um, but it is almost Christmas time. The day is coming near. Uh, this past week and this Friday night, we had a Christmas party for our small group leaders, um, those who help out with, they, they, these small group leaders, there's several of you in here. Actually, if I could have you guys stand up, if you lead a junior high vitality or a revived senior high group, would you please stand up so the rest of the church can see um, those who, yeah, let's give these guys a round of applause. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you. And there are more. There are more, too. They're not all here today. But these leaders um, have committed to investing an incredible amount of effort and time, love, compassion into these students' lives. Okay? Um, and ask them. Talk to them about their experience so far. Our ministry today would not be the same without them. So I thank you very much for that, leaders. Um, but this past weekend, we had a party for our, our small group leaders. Kind of a thank you. Kind of a get-together Christmas party for them. And, and usually, the Christmas parties I attend, I don't know if this is different for you, the Christmas parties I attend, we usually don't really get too much talking about the birth of Jesus. It's usually a lot of games and food, and that's awesome. That's fun. Um, but usually, the Christmas parties, we don't we don't focus on what the season is truly about. And so with this Christmas party on Friday night, I wanted to end by reading the birth narrative from Luke chapter 2. And oftentimes when we talk about the Christmas story, when we talk about Jesus' birth, oftentimes your mind, our minds jump to the Gospels. Okay? But today, 
and along with several theologians, we'd argue that the account of Jesus' birth doesn't only occur in the Gospels, in Scripture. There's another spot, and this is where we're going to be today. It's in Revelation chapter 12. I'm seeing some heads nod, so some of you have heard this before. But turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. This is where we're going to start today. But the primary focus is going to be a few chapters later. But if you have your, your Bibles, please, please open up, or your Bible app. Open up to Revelation chapter 12. That's where we're going to start. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. John writes, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then... Another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. There it is. There it is, the most wonderful time of the year, that oh-so-holy and silent night. But can you see the symbolism in this passage, the imagery to the birth narrative of Jesus Christ? Theologians spend large portions of their lives debating what the actual scene is that is being represented here. The woman, does she represent Mary? If so, you can obviously see the connection to the birth of Jesus Christ. Or does she represent something else, like Israel, or the New Testament church, or maybe the ideal? Maybe she represents the ideal of what the church should be. What about the, what about the red dragon? It's got to be Satan, right? I mean, John calls it Satan. What if it represents something else? What if it maybe represents Egypt? This is a discussion what about, what about the male child? No doubt, the male child most likely represents Jesus Christ, as, as we see, he will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, Psalm 2. So at one level of interpreting this, the symbols in this passage, we have the story of Christmas. It just includes a fiery red dragon, which I think we need to add that to next year's uh, kids' Christmas uh, play. That'd be awesome. Put it in the background. I wrote a paper over this for uh, this passage specifically in uh, my seminary work this past semester, and the discussion is quite lengthy, and quite honestly, I find it a detriment to the meta-narrative of the book of Revelation, because Revelation 12 is not the focus of our message. The birth narrative isn't the focus of our message. The birth of Jesus isn't even the focus of the, the entire gospel message. Christmas shouldn't be the focus of our, Chris, or of our Christian walk. Christmas isn't the climax of the story. That's Easter, and it's coming. So maybe our focus around Christmas time shouldn't be so much on just the birth of Jesus Christ as it should be on what is coming, Easter. Revelation 12, if it should be read as the birth narrative, isn't where, the story, isn't where the story ends. Revelation 12 serves one purpose. I played baseball in college. Um, I went to Lincoln Christian University, and we were terrible. I feel like I talk about this often. Uh, but we were terrible, and there's a lot of illustrations that go with that. Um, but I loved baseball. I played my whole life. 
And I know, I know a couple things about the game, and one of the things um, that I was as decent at was running bases. Um, and it's not as simple as just running, okay? Um, there's a lot that goes into it. Those who play track, you probably understand. There's a little more that goes into it than what people think. But, but if you are on base in baseball, let's say you're on first base, okay? And uh, you, you are um, preparing to go to second. You're preparing to steal second base, okay? You take a few steps off, you're leading, all right, you're leading off, a few steps away from the bag, headed towards second base, just inching closer. And your entire focus, if you're the runner, your entire focus is on the pitcher, primarily the heels. And your entire focus is on his heels for the only, for the only purpose of getting, hopefully getting to second base. That's the only reason you focus there. And the only reason you want to get to second base is to hopefully get home. And so the only reason you would focus on the pitcher's heels, because if it was like this, he's going home. You can steal. If he's going like this, he's coming back to first base. And so you're, the only reason you're focusing on the pitcher's heels is so hopefully, eventually, you can get home. Revelation 12 serves one purpose, and it is to eventually get us home. Chapter 12 has to be read with chapter 21 in mind. And this is where I want to turn to next. Chapter 21. Chapter 12 has to be read with chapter 21, because chapter 21 is coming. Christmas, obviously, is important. That's not what I'm saying today. But it has to be celebrated with the Easter event in mind. 21 is coming. So where is your focus during Christmas? Is it on yourself? Is it on your family? Is it on the birth of Jesus Christ, and that's it? Not even a second thought of the remembrance as to why he was born. And if that's the case... If that's our focus, then there's no anticipation of what is to come through this child. Which means that there's no reason for you and I to live expectantly, always on the verge of our seats, waiting for his return. Your focus fashions your faith. I want an active faith that requires me to live in earnest expectation of his second coming. So this Christmas, I'm going to focus on the why of his first coming. The second question I wanted to spend some time discussing, and we'll jump into chapter 21, is this. Here's our second question. Where is your focus during trials? Where is your focus during the the trials of life? Verse 1, chapter 21, verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, And there was no longer any sea. I'm reminded here of the scene uh, from Lord of the Rings. And uh, you students know I like to use Lord of the Rings analogies. Um, And so if you've never seen it, it's okay. But I'm reminded of a scene, uh, the last chapter of the the best trilogy this world has ever known. Okay, Where Gandalf is standing uh, on top, looking out across to what is going to be the battlefield to end all battles. Okay, And he quotes this very famous line. He's looking at the enemy and he, he quotes... We have, he says, we have come to it at last, the great battle of our time. You don't have to see the movie to know what I'm, what I'm talking about, and you just need to understand. He, he looks out and says, we have come to it at last. We open up to Revelation 21, and verse 1, and I feel like Gandalf is standing right next to me, which is kind of weird, going, we have come to it at last. The seven churches of Asia Minor no doubt, felt something of the same thing. See, they've been through years of persecution and the struggle of simply living in a world that not only dislikes you, but doesn't want anything to do with you or your God. 
I imagine that the soon-to-be martyrs and those sitting in their churches while reading this letter approached the final segment, which for us, chapter 21-22, and pausing and releasing the biggest exhale while saying, we have come to it at last. With chapter 21, we're taken to a world that doesn't yet exist, but it brings hope to the reader of one that eventually will. The word new here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth is interesting. interesting. If you look up the word new in in the English dictionary, you'll come up with 14 plus different definitions, according to Webster. But in Greek, there's two words for new. And the word used here is kainos. Okay? And this word new here, kainos, does not imply, does not denote that there was nothing and now there is something. But what kainos means is more of a restoration. Picture a house that is newly remodeled or a Model T that is restored. Okay? Kainos means that there was something, there was, it wasn't complete, it wasn't made whole, but now it is. Paul uses this word in Corinthians when he says, uh, when he says, you are a new creation. Kainos. Something that wasn't complete, it wasn't made whole, but now it is. And John envisions a new heaven and a new earth, one that has been restored. So why is that important? You're all like, Jared, I don't care about the Greek. And why is that important for us? I think, I think it means that we we aren't done with this place. I think it's, it's an interesting thought. I think it's saying that this earth won't necessarily just be destroyed and wiped away entirely, but it will be restored. And by the power of the creator, it will be made anew. I want to look at the end of the verse there, verse 1. And there was no longer any sea. In the Greco-Roman world, the sea symbolized chaos and evil. And for the churches of Asia Minor to read that in this new heaven and in this new earth, that there's no longer going to be any chaos. There's no longer going to be any evil. I mean, you can imagine the hope and excitement for this new world to be ushered in. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This final vision describes, um, describes, uh, among other things, the descent of this new Jerusalem. From the, throne room of Gra- from the throne room of God, dressed as a beautiful bride for her husband. But what are we to make of this new Jerusalem? What, are, what is John talking about? First, I think we need to remember who this letter was written to. And as I've already said, it's written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Okay, It's not written to us. It's written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Christians in Asia Minor who are really all over the spectrum in their Christian walk. There's from those who are burnt out because of the pressures of the world to those who have placed their focus on themselves and their personal gain and what they can do by themselves, thus refashioning their focus and their faith towards self-reliance and independence. The world that they live in is, is Asia Minor is pretty far from Rome, um, but still Rome is in control here. At the end of the first century, there was a massive earthquake that completely demolished two cities, Sardis and Philadelphia. Both of these cities are mentioned, both of these cities are two of the seven that this letter is written to. And this earthquake completely destroyed, leveled the buildings of the city. 
And Rome needed to step in, and Rome started pouring in materials to help rebuild the cities. And Sardis was so grateful that they renamed it the New Caesarea, the New Caesar. I think John is using this idea of New Jerusalem to take the Roman Empire and its, its ruler and comparing it, setting against the kingdom of God and its ruler and showing us there's no comparison. There's no comparison because no ruler or power or authority is capable to stand against the strength of our God and his kingdom. Amen? Verse 3, we're moving on. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Kainos. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. We have mention of this this tree of life and of the river of the water of life, which no doubt should take us back to the scene of the Garden of Eden. And where the, the tree of life is placed in the middle and the river of life is flowing from it. And it's a picture that John is painting of, of how things were supposed to be. But what's more, he's painting an even bigger picture of how things will one day be again. A new order is in view in which sorrow will be no more. Gold and precious stones abound, and the joy of the Lord is never-ending because we have finally been able to see his face, and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. As I read this, I can't help but ask myself, when trials come, and when sorrow is so overwhelming, is my focus on my tears and my pain and my trials, or is my focus on the one who can wipe them all away? Where is your focus even in the midst of the trials of life? Or better yet, who is your focus even in the midst of the trials of life? But I want to take a step back because I know it's, it's not easy for me, if I'm being honest, it's not easy for me to stand before you and talk about how you encourage you to reshift your focus when so many of you are currently in the midst of a trial or pain and to talk about it as if there's some one, two, three, ABC kind of solution. It's not easy to stand before people who come to church, whether you're here every week, or whether this is your first time back in a long time, or whether you've been dragged here kicking and screaming. You've either, there's, 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 you all fall into one of three groups. One, you've either been through what seems an unbearable trial, or two, you will go through one someday, or three, you are going through one as we speak. And it's not easy to stand before a group of broken people in need of restoration and say that even in the midst of trials, 
our focus cannot be on ourselves in our situation, but it has to be on the one whom this story is all about. It's easier said than done when you're in the middle of it, but today I need you to hear this one thing. Your focus fashions your faith. And when life seems too much to handle and the trials and tribulations are at such an immense weight that you just feel like collapsing and giving in and because of it, your faith maybe starts to waver just a little bit and you just aren't sure anymore if all this church stuff is really for you. I exhort you, refashion your focus upon him because church, a day is coming when this world will be no more. The trials will come to an end. Tears will dry out. And we will finally be able to see and look upon his face and ask ourselves, how could this not have been my focus all along? Can you imagine standing before the presence of the Almighty? Or better yet, falling before the presence of the Almighty and worshiping him face to face which this begs me to ask you one more question about the focus of your everyday. Where is your focus during worship? Where is your focus during worship? A few years ago, I served as an intern at a church up near Chicago, and uh, they had a pretty good-sized youth group, and there was, it was midweek stuff. And on Tuesday and Wednesday nights, they had a worship service for uh, some 500 students. And usually, I, uh, during these nights, I was either on, able to be on stage and help lead in worship, or I was down in, in the, with the students on the floor and jumping and being crazy and doing what students do during worship. Um, but, in, but one particular night, I decided to kind of step back and just spectate, just evaluate um, the night, see what was going on. So I stood in the back by the sound. And I'm watching as, as we get started for the night, the guy on stage, he finishes praying, and he says, all right, stand up. And all the students stand up, and what they did at this youth group, they, uh, which I think a lot of them do, they just rush, they don't go up on the stage, but they rush and get as close as they can to the stage, kind of like it was a concert, like they're forming some mosh pit, crazy students, I know. And uh, so I'm watching, I'm spectating this as they start singing a song. And uh, I look over to the left side, and I just kind of pan and over here on the left, There's three uh, male core students. And what we would consider a core student is is a student who's typically they're raised in church their whole life. They're in here all the time. They just can't seem to maybe get enough. And they want to grow all the time in their spiritual walk. And so we have three male core students over here. And I'm watching them, and they're just hands raised, maybe doing the side to side, maybe a little tear, crying, eyes shut, just belting it. Terrible singers, but didn't care, belting it. And so I'm watching them, and I'm thinking, man, this is awesome. They're getting it. But I decided to watch them a little longer, you know, high school students. And uh, what they do is one of the guy in the, the back, um, he, he, he's doing this, and all of a sudden he, he starts doing this kind of thing where he goes, he's looking over, and he catches the eye of a couple girls on the other side. Uh, high school of boys and girls. And uh, he, with his hands still raised, he, he, the girls call him over, so he tags his friends, and all three of them, with their hands raised, just kind of head on over, to where the girls are, and they start to gather, and the girls have their hands raised, and I kid you not, this is what blew my mind. All of them, when they got together, took out their phones, and with one hand still raised, started texting with the other one. I don't know how you multitask in that way, or if that is even effective, but I was blown away, one, and two, I was entirely disheartened, because their focus in worship is not where it was supposed to be. 
And I think we can all can relate to that in some level. Verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall and twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length uh, and as wide as, as, and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third something, the fourth emerald. The f- then there's a list of other ones I don't want to pronounce. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Just a few verses into this, chap- into this section of the chapter, we are brought back to the, the, to the discussion of the new Jerusalem. But this time, there's a much more in-depth description. And I don't want us to miss the point of what John is talking about here. I don't think he's trying to hide it from us either. This new Jerusalem isn't an actual city. It's not an actual city. He's not trying to describe a physical place where people will live. But this new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. It's the church of which the portrait John paints symbolizes to the reader of Revelation a beautiful and abundant ideal where everything is one day made complete, made kainos. The number 12 is prevalent here, as you can read. I said that about 100 times. Symbolizing the eternal unity of Israel, both ancient Israel and the New Testament church. And personally, because of that, I cannot wait till the day I can shake hands with Moses and shoot the breeze, ask him about the bush he saw, and he can talk to me about the terrible baseball team I played on. And together, we get to turn and worship the Lamb. Because in this wedding, the focus isn't on the bride. It's not on the cool things we'll get to do and be a part of in heaven, but it's on the Lamb. Let's be honest. There are some days, there are some days you don't feel like coming here. You don't feel like taking part in the body of Christ. And maybe you woke up today and maybe the family just wasn't quite getting along, but you walked in with smiling faces nonetheless. Maybe you're coming and you've been in the hospital all week with your loved one. Maybe you're sitting here and you're freaking out because you have no idea how you're going to pay the next month's bills. The American church has apparently done a really good job of making the world think that if you mess up or your life isn't perfect, then the only thing that the church is good for is making you feel as guilty as possible 
And until you get it all figured out, don't you bother coming and worshiping in this house with our God. And I'm here to tell you today that that's not how God works. So let's drop the charade, church, because it's in those moments of trials and tribulations when the weight of the world is pressing down. It's in those moments when you've been hurt, broken, and bruised. It's in those moments when you've messed up and you're in need of repentance, when you just can't seem to shake the temptation. It's in those moments when the stress of your life has brought you to a point where you feel like there's no other possible solution than to just give up. That's when you're in the place of true worship. And that's when you're in the best position to worship the Lamb. That's the moment when he wants you to put aside the facade and give it all to him because he is the one who will wipe every tear from your eyes. I lied, um, and I asked for your forgiveness. I have one more question for you today. It's not just three, but I wanted to ask one more question. But it goes, it goes hand in hand with our last one. And here it is. Who is your focus? Who is your focus? When you wake and when you rise, when you get ready for the day, when you head off to school or work, when you finish the projects and things you have to do that day, when your family is back together in the evening or you have practice, when you lay down at the end of the day preparing for tomorrow's tasks, who is your focus? The end of the chapter, starting in verse 22, says this, I did not see a temple in the city. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day... Will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever into it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of, book of life. If your focus fashions your faith, then who is your focus on? Because who your focus is on will determine who your faith is placed. There's a tension here at the end, and it's a struggle that has been apparent throughout the history of the world. It's been allowed to disrupt, to deceive, and to destroy. It's been allowed to weave its way into the Christian life and in life in general. And I want to talk about it today. It's a struggle with idolatry. Or in other words, it's a struggle between the self and the Savior. Who is your focus? Who's in charge of your life? Who's in the front seat? It's really easy to read the stories like the ones we've studied today and ask questions that pertain to only our well-being. How does this affect me? What does the end of the world mean for me? And when we do that, we completely miss the focus of the story. And because of it, our faith is sidetracked. It's easy to read Revelation like chapter 12 and focus on so many other aspects but don't you ever forget who this fo the focus of this book is about. Don't ever forget who the Christmas story is really on. Who is your focus? Have you ever wanted to know where you fall on the measuring scale of faith as if that's a thing? Look at your focus. Look at your focus when you read scripture. 
Revelation 12, and the birth of the Savior is not the end of the story, nor is it the beginning. Don't miss the focus of Christmas. Easter's coming. Your focus fashions your faith. So we have to refashion our focus on the Lamb, the one who wipes every tear from our eyes.